perhaps the place to start looking for a credibility gap is not in the offices of the government in Washington, but in the studios of the networks in New York. That was Richard Nixon's vice president, Spiro Agnew, delivering one of the most controversial speeches of a tumultuous era, a full-fledged attack on the television news media given in Des Moines, Iowa on November 13, 1969. Drafted by Nixon speechwriter Patrick Buchanan, Agnew skewered the anchors and producers of the three television networks, portraying them as smug elitists cut off from the concerns of real Americans, who nonetheless held unchecked power to control the flow of news to the country. It was a speech, ironically covered live on the three TV networks themselves, that was viewed by some as a menacing attack on the First Amendment, but which nonetheless resonated with a group Nixon called the Silent Majority. Now a new book lays out the case for why Agnew and his speech 50 years ago next month anticipated the politics of Donald Trump and his attacks on journalists as enemies of the people. We'll discuss with one of the authors of Republican Populist, Spiro Agnew, and the Origins of Donald Trump's America on this episode of Buried Treasure. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence Tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So, you know, Spiro Agnew is a guy probably most of our listeners have long since forgotten if they knew who he was in the first place. But for those of us who lived through the Watergate and Vietnam eras, it's a name that resonates. Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, we're, we're both the sort of children of Watergate, uh, yeah. consumed by that amazing and tragic time in, in history. But Spiro Agnew, at least for me, was a, always felt a little bit like a footnote of history and a bit of a joke in some ways. Yeah. And, you know, you people of our age remember the, you know, alliterative speeches, the negative nabobs of nattering, uh, nattering nabobs, nabobs of negativity. Of and, of negativity. And, you know, and the fact that he ends up like leaving the White House in disgrace for like some $15,000 bribe. Yeah. The, but the the reality is, is that is that Agnew actually had figured something out and, and Richard Nixon had noticed it. And that right. explains how he ended up as vice president. And what he figured out was really a kind of a forerunner to what Trump uh, did to become president himself. And that's what this book is about. I'm going to talk about it. And it's this idea that, you know, this kind of populism, this anti-elitism, this idea that, you know, you can tap into people's working class, people's grievances had real political power. Absolutely. That's what put him on Nixon's radar screen in the first place when he like called out uh, civil rights leaders uh, after the riots following Martin Luther King's assassination. And then 
Pat Buchanan plays an interesting role in this, you know, conservative attack dog who was, uh, you know, burrowed into the uh, Nixon White House writing speeches. He crafts this speech in Des Moines. That's actually, uh, you know, a pretty fascinating speech when you listen to it. It's demagogic, but it's also well-reasoned. It's uh, powerfully uh, crafted and delivered by Agnew. And it makes a case that the TV networks had too much power, which was not on its face an unreasonable argument. But the politics of it, I think, had a very negative um, connotation. An ugly ugly. side to it um, at a time when the country was very divided and there was violence in the air. I have to say, before we get to this conversation, it was politically opportunistic, but that's not to say it wasn't authentic. You know, he did come from very kind of middle class or working class roots. His father was a Greek immigrant who ran a diner. And I think these were his genuine feelings. And that is true of Trump as well. Right. (laughs) Although uh, Trump obviously, um, you know, had plenty of uh, money, but he was uh, in Queens uh, looking at the elites in Manhattan. Right. Um, Well, look, let's just uh, get right to it with Zach Massetti. And it should be a pretty fascinating conversation. We now have with us Zach Massetti, one of the authors of Republican Populist, Spiro Agnew, and the Origins of Donald Trump's America. Zach is the president of Ripon College and also a professor of politics and government there. Zach, welcome to Skullduggery. Mike, thanks for having me. So absolutely fascinating subject and one that I don't think people have thought about much. Spiro Agnew is um, one of those characters from the past, what people most remember is is he was forced to resign as vice president amid a corruption scandal. What prompted you to want to write a book about him now? Right. So, you know, Spiro Agnew is one of these people that's been ghosted from American history. You never hear about him. He's the answer to a trivia question. And I grew up in Maryland and was always fascinated by Agnew and Maryland politics. In 1960, he's on the zoning board in Baltimore County in Towson. Eight years later, he's vice president. Now, that's an incredible ascent in American politics, really only rivaled perhaps by Sarah Palin and Donald Trump. And when you dig into Agnew's papers, which are largely unexplored, they're at the Hornbake Library at the University of Maryland, you see all sorts of great back and forth between Agnew's two speechwriters and and him. And of course, his two speechwriters were Pat Buchanan and William Sapphire. And they're crafting language and speeches that attack the media in a very calculated way. And you can see the connection immediately that lights up to Trump. And you can also see it in the letters that he got from the silent majority Americans across the country who feel that they finally found their voice. Which, by the way, a phrase, I didn't realize this until I read your book, that it was actually Agnew who used that phrase in a speech that he gave before Richard Nixon did, right? Right. So Agnew's out there talking early about this. In fact, this speech that he gives, the famous speech he gives in Des Moines, Iowa in November 1969, where he attacks a small group of men in New York and Washington at the television networks who are setting the agenda for Americans. They've planned this out. It's in response to Nixon's Vietnamization speech, which is the silent majority speech the couple nights before. But they'd planned it out. And you read and you see that Buchanan, for instance, writes in the margins, we're really flicking the scab off this. And of course, it's the birth of 
It's the birth of conservative news. Roger Ailes is in the White House at the same time. This is the beginning of a, a really a, a response to the idea that a small group of men in New York and Washington were controlling the news. Right. That Des Moines speech is so fascinating when you go back and read about it in your book. I actually listened to it last night on YouTube, and it is a couple of things left out of me. It was a really well-crafted speech. I mean, you know, this is Buchanan at his best, really dissecting the power and control that the three TV networks, that's all we had back then, have over the American news media and the flow of information to American voters. No, that's and you know, Buchanan had been an editorial writer for the St. Louis Globe before mm-hmm. he came to the White House, before he joined Nixon. And What happens in the early 70s are a lot of these newspapers and television networks based in Washington, New York, start to bring in House conservatives on their editorial pages, on the op-ed pages. And this is new. The idea that William Sapphire, Agnew's old speechwriter, would have a post at the New York Times writing every week. A lot of people think this was in response to Agnew's critique which was written by Buchanan and Nixon as well, who was involved in the speech mm. writing. So speaking of Nixon and a kind of key moment in that meteoric rise to the White House is something that Nixon notices Spiro Agnew doing in Maryland when he's governor, I guess, which is after the Martin Luther King assassination and riots in those cities. He is highly critical of black politicians. And he sort of, I think, was seen as, like Trump, a kind of a protector of white America, which is feeling threatened in some ways. Let's talk about that Indeed, he, he calls in, you know, Baltimore's on fire in April 1968, and he calls in black leadership and he lectures them. Of course, he lectures them sitting on a podium with the white police chief and a band of white policemen around him and says, it's your fault that the cities are burning, not paying any respect to the fallen Martin Luther King, but your fault, you're not protecting your cities. And this catches Buchanan's eye, who sends a note into Nixon and says, we should watch this guy because the law and order message that Trump talks about in 2016 as well, it's the same message that Nixon and Agnew used in 68. So I want to get back to that Des Moines speech because it is so critical, I think, to your thesis that Spiro Agnew is the guy who anticipated Donald Trump. And I'm just quoting a little from your book where you talk about the speech. He blasted away, this is Agnew speaking in Des Moines, blasted away at the New York, Washington clubbiness of the media, quote, what do Americans know of these men? They read the same newspapers and draw their political views from the same sources. Worse, they talk constantly to one another, thereby providing artificial reinforcement to their shared viewpoints, a monopoly sanctioned and licensed by the government. Perhaps it's time the networks were made more responsive to the views of the nation and more responsible to the people they serve. Did Agnew have a point? Well, I I should be asking you that question. I mean, aren't you all, you know, still reading the same newspapers, talking to the same people? I mean, it it sounds to me like, like, yeah. That's not a not too far off the mark, right? Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> at, at that point, there was no internet, there was no Twitter, there was no social media, there was no cable TV. So he was right that three networks were setting the tone for the entire country, acting as gatekeepers. Sure. Now, the you know the other thing here is Agnew had something to hide. 
as, yeah. as does Trump, clearly, had something to hide and was worried about the newspapers and the television stations and what they might end yeah. up finding and what they did end up finding. Before we get to that, what was the reaction to the speech? So the reaction to the speech, you know, the networks are flooded with telegrams, overwhelmingly positive for Agnew, overwhelmingly against the networks. Now, network folks obviously strike back and say this is outrageous. The speech was televised nationally. So they was preempted national on all three networks, which think about that, a vice president giving a national speech on the three networks. <laughs> and what also happened was Nixon loved it and sort of realized in Agnew now he'd found the sort of point of the bayonet of their strategy. And also Nixon and his own insecurity had to figure out a way to calm Agnew down, uh, didn't want someone to outshine him. So he got ready to send him on a nice long goodwill tour that followed not long after that speech. Right. Well, and the reality is Spiro Agnew as vice president, even though most people, all they know, if they know anything about him, is his uh, leaving the White House in, in scandal and disgrace. But he was popular. By 1969, he's the third most popular man in America behind, behind Richard Nixon and Billy Graham. And, and that's, again, from being the zoning board commissioner in Towson, Maryland in 1960 to by the end of the decade being the third most admired man in America. It's pretty good. But, but <laughs> in the late – so 68, 69, he's be- – beginning to become a bit of a problem for the for the White House because they are getting nervous about all of the divisiveness. Uh, Kent State's happen. They're worried about college campuses. And there's even a move to throw him off uh, the ticket, right? There is. So he campaigned, you know, he campaigns uh, in 70 as, as sort of the administration point man in the midterm elections. And by 72, Nixon has no personal relationship with him, can't stand him. And then you read, listen to the White House tapes, and Agnew is a, is, Nixon treats him as a joke, laughs about him, doesn't want to appear on stage with him, certainly doesn't want his hands held over his head with Agnew at the convention, anything like Why? that. Just didn't, just look down on him, just thought yeah. he was from the, you know, from, from the wrong mm-hmm. side of the political tracks. Agnew had no, you know, Nixon had been vice president for eight years. He'd been in Congress. He'd right. been this sort of, you know, longtime Republican figure. Agnew was the zoning board commissioner from Towson. He was no one. <laughs> and he brought, when he came to Washington, he didn't bring with him high fancy people. He brought people with him from Annapolis and Harford County and places in Maryland who were completely overwhelmed by Nixon's staff, which was... Top flight. I mean, these were people from California, people who'd been involved in Republican politics for years. But they couldn't throw him off the ticket in 72 because he was too popular. And he was particularly popular in the South, where he was raising money hand over fist for the party. And there was no way they were going to get rid of him. Jesse Helms, Strom Thurmond, these people would have none of it and go on the record saying, Agnew's our guy in 76. So it's, uh, you know, it's a story of what ifs, too, here. By the way, I, you know, I remembered the Des Moines speech, but I misremembered that probably Agnew's most famous line was not in that speech. It was in another speech shortly before that, um, which he's talking about college protests, and he talks, uh, he says, a spirit of national masochism prevails, encouraged by an effete core of impudent snobs. Yes, I have a button that says effete core of impudent snobs on it. (laughs) Such Um, a great line. It's a great line. And Buchanan? uh, Probably Sapphire on this one, actually. Which one was nattering nabobs of and that's also in that's that's also in there in in San Diego. He gives that he gives that talk as well. He's known for this alliteration. This yeah. becomes his signature thing. And you know, 
crowds flocked to him. People, the people loved it. They were waiting for it. And yeah. in the same way, you watch these Trump rallies, and the people that are there are clearly enjoying themselves. I should say we are a podcast for an effete core of impudent sm- right, snobs. Right, proudly uh, so. Right, right <laughs> proudly so. All right, but let's get to what Agnew had to hide and how it all unraveled for him, because it is such a fascinating story. While Watergate is playing out, there is a separate investigation going on by the U.S. Attorney's Office in Maryland. Yes. And it's, you know, so Agnew here, of course, is so far out of Nixon's orbit that he has nothing to do with Watergate. In fact, people are saying he could be president. He could be president before the end of the term because he knew nothing. There's a great exchange between Agnew and Jeb Magruder, and they're playing tennis. And Agnew says, what what happened here in Watergate? Magruder says to him, it was our operation, got messed up. And Agnew says, well, I don't want to know anything more about it. I don't want to have anything to do with this. And he was because he just was had been so marginalized. He has nothing to do with Watergate. But he had his own problems. The U.S. Attorney's Office in Baltimore, headed by George Bell. George Bell was a Republican. His brother, Jay Glenn Bell, was actually the sitting Republican U.S. senator from Maryland at that time. And Bell and his team of U.S. attorneys were looking into corruption in Baltimore County, in particular Agnew's successor, a guy named Dale Anderson, who was a Democrat. And they were finding nickel and dime stuff, kickbacks, 5% off government contracts. And it became quickly clear that the journalists who were covering the story, including people like Richard Cohen and Jules Whitcover, and that Agnew was involved in this as well. And these Republican appointees, including the attorney general at the time, Elliot Richardson, allow the investigation to go forward, and people come forward, flip, and recite chapter and verse that he's getting brown paper bags full of money. Literally, envelopes at the old executive office building are being pushed across the table to Delivered to the White House. Delivered to the White House. And here's the thing. Not that much money. We're talking about like five grand, ten grand, right? <laughs> Stuff that's sort of walk around money. And and part of what Agnew was, was Agnew demanding these uh, kickbacks, or was it they were being offered and he just didn't refuse? Is so, there a distinction in the law? Well, I mean, no, but, but I just. But part of his defense when he goes to see Nixon is he says, "Look, everybody was doing this. Everybody in Maryland is doing this." And in fact, you know, this is pre-post Watergate election laws where a lot of times campaign cash was given to people, mm-hmm. checks written, cash given, without much official yeah. legal mm-hmm. action, right? no right. registering of these gifts. So Agnew's getting this. Of course, he's unlike uh, a lot of the other politicians he's dealing with. He comes from humble roots. He doesn't have family money. Yeah, son of a, of a Greek diner son owner. Son of a right, Greek diner right. owner in Baltimore. Nothing. So he needs this money you know, to, to, to wear nice suits, basically. Well, Isikoff, you, didn't you cover the state house in Maryland? I mean, uh, uh, notoriously corrupt I, Maryland I, politics. I, I, I did. It brilliantly I did. in the wire, And by, by the, the way. way, there was a, a point at which the Maryland, years after Agnew had left, uh, the Maryland attorney general at this time, I believe it was Steve, Steve Sachs, Sachs. Oh, Steve sued, Sachs. I knew his daughter. Um, sued Agnew for yeah. the return of the gifts that he stole from the Maryland State House. I think when he left the Maryland State yeah. House, he took a lot of uh, gifts for him. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, the case keeps going on through the 80s. In right. fact, Agnew actually at one point wants wants uh, restitution for the, for the penalties he's paid uh, when he's right. out in California. W- walk us through the tick-tock of, of, of how he came to resign. So they, the U.S. Attorney's Office is doing this investigation. They get these witnesses who talk about making 
taking kickbacks to Agnew first while he was governor and then while he's a sitting vice president. Right. Actually, it starts while he's county executive in Baltimore County okay. and goes all the way through. But so uh, this is now we're looking at the late summer, early fall of 1973. So, again, this is less than a year before Nixon resigns. And Agnew is trying to find various options. Should he go to Congress? Basically, he goes to Congress, and Peter Rodino at the time says, you can, you can go F yourself. There's no way you we're know, doing— he's, say, he's saying that as vice president, I can only be impeached. I can't be indicted. Right. So please, Congress, go I'm ahead gonna, and investigate and impeach me if you want. Right. Nixon is worried, does this help me? Does this hurt me? In fact, <laughs> right. decides I'm just going to stay neutral and let this play itself out. And Agnew publicly, at least, is saying up until the very end, I didn't do anything. Uh, I shouldn't be, you know, I didn't do anything that I should be ashamed of. But it's so clear they have the goods on him that they take him up to court in Baltimore. And Richardson is there. The attorney general is there, stands up and reads a statement. And the judge, also a Republican appointee, the former former, they have to bring someone in from Richmond from the Fourth Circuit to actually adjudicate the case because everybody in Baltimore has ties to Agnew. But Walter Hoffman, the judge, uh, who's a former attorney general of Virginia, stands up and says, you pleads no contest to tax evasion in 1967. But what's clear is, is that uh, the, a good deal has been cut here. There is plenty of, of rumor in the secondary literature that Agnew, that the feds had found out Agnew was having an affair and was dishing money in all different types of places to his paramour. And so what would have happened here... I didn't know about this. Yeah, no, this, is, this, is, this really? is great stuff. Well, part of the reason is why did he collapse so quickly? Why mm -hmm. did he give in so quickly? And the idea, I think, at the end was his whole political world, had this gone to trial, would have been shredded. Mm -hmm. Not just his... Here's this guy who's the paragon of middle America, who's standing up against the elite... The, the snobs, the intellectuals, the media. And what is he doing? He's taking kickbacks. He's cheating on his wife. He's doing all these things that every politician in the, is, is supposedly doing. In some ways, he got off pretty easy in the end, right? It was well, like a $15,000 fine or something. And that's the criticism, of course, is yeah. that he didn't ultimately meet justice. But think about what's going on in, at the same time here, particularly in Richardson's world. Ten days later, Richardson is fired in the Saturday Night Massacre. And the Yom Kippur War starts 48 hours later. I mean, all this stuff's going on. In fact, we spent some time with Ben Bradley before he passed away talking about this. And Bradley said, you know, this wasn't World War II. I mean, it was big stuff, but there was a lot of other things yeah. <laughs> going on. And it's true, there were. Who was the uh, paramour? Uh, that I don't know. That I don't. I don't. I don't know who it was. <laughs> right. uh, but you know, Agnew goes on afterwards and writes a novel in 1976 after he leaves. After all this is over, called the Canfield Decision, which is about a vice president who has an extramarital affair. Uh, and does work for, I know it's bizarre. Well, I, I, I got to say, that one thing I, I loved was, you know, when he finally leaves the White House in disgrace, his retirement is playing golf with Frank Sinatra, yep. lobbying for Saudi potentates, and writing this bizarre, steamy novel that you just alluded no, to. Absolutely. I wonder if that's a roadmap for Donald Trump. What, what's he going to do uh, in retirement? Well, th there is this great scene that, that, that's described about Agnew where many years later he's in Europe somewhere and a sort of bearded hippie comes up to him and says, hey man, lay some rhetoric on me. And, <laughs> and, I, and one sort of wonders, you know, what's Donald Trump's 
10 years from now, he's going to be somewhere and someone's going to say, hey, man, <laughs> lay some fake yeah, news yeah, on me yeah, or whatever. Tweet, so, tweet me. <laughs> so let's bring it back to Trump and how Agnew anticipated Trump. Uh, talk about that, how you sort of made that connection and how straight a line is it? Yeah. Well, you know, there's a lot, there are a lot of connections in, in between the two. I mean, first, obviously, both are political opportunists. There's not a whole lot of ideology here. These are people looking for opportunity. Agnew had been a Democrat. Trump had been a Democrat. Agnew decides to become a Republican because he could be a big fish in a small pond in Maryland politics. Trump has sort of done the same thing politically, the idea that he could rise quickly in the Republican Party because the field was so scattered and so forth. Both used rhetoric effectively. Both counterpunch effectively. Both have chips on their shoulders. They have problems with American institutions that are supposed to set norms and regulations. Uh, and it goes on and on uh, that these these connect. And both are insecure about their education and their background. Agnew had failed out of Johns Hopkins and then uh, went to the University of Baltimore to get his law degree and his undergraduate degree at the time. University of Baltimore was an unaccredited school. In the 1950s, he worked in a series of of really unimpressive jobs. You see it in Trump, too, this constant bragging about, well, I'm a smart guy, and I went to Wharton, sort of. I mean, you know, transferred right. in. I mean, there's all this. Yeah. It's the same kind of insecurity that you see. Yeah. And then the, the, the lashback against those Eastern elites who have that education, that sort of Manhattan, not Queens, sensibilities that Trump clearly envies and wants. You see the same kind of thing with Agnew. And, and there he was in sync to some degree with, with Nixon, right? Nixon had a problem with the Kennedys and the Harvards sure. and the elites and, and all of that. But sure. one contrast uh, seems to be that uh, Agnew had much better speech writers, or at least he stuck uh, than, than Trump does, or at least he stuck to the teleprompter because uh, you read those speeches, as Isakoff was saying before, and they're really well-constructed and, uh, I think, well-delivered. Uh, yeah, they, you know, Agnew, the first three or four months he's vice president, is doing the traditional vice president stuff. You read those in his initial speeches, which, you can, which we read in, the, at his, in his papers, and he's cutting ribbons at the Bureau of Indian Affairs and Space Council <laughs> and the stuff that nobody, you know, reiterating what Nixon had said the week before. And he's bored because he's not in the inner circle. There's nothing going on. He goes to Buchanan. His his own speechwriters don't have the intellectual horsepower. He goes to Buchanan and says, "Let's let's do something. Let's <laughs> let's stir some stuff up." And that's that's what happens. There's the speech, the the Des Moines speech on media, but he goes after affirmative action. He goes after intellectuals in the lead up to Kent State. He's all over university officials. In fact, a group of college presidents come see Nixon after Kent State and say, "Tone it down. Get this guy to stop talking about." the anti-Vietnam War protesting because it's stirring up campus and we can't have it. You are the president of Ripon College. And of course, Ripon is probably best known as the birthplace of the Ripon Society, which was for years the moderate Republican organization that tried to bring the Republican Party away from some of the politics that Spiro Agnew was stoking there. Does the Ripon Society still exist? Well, so Ripon, Wisconsin is the birthplace of the Republican Party as well. So 1854, this is where they come to an anti-abolitionist party, and they meet in a little white schoolhouse and proclaim their independence from the Whigs, and they're they're a new party. The Ripon Society, I don't know that it still exists. 
Agnew went hard after liberal Republicans. And in his most famous case, he went after Senator Charles Goodell of New York yes. in 1970. This is now, of course, the father of Roger Goodell, the right. NFL football commissioner. <laughs> yes. He goes hard after Goodell in 1970 because Goodell wasn't supporting Nixon on the Vietnam War. Right. And so Agnew, like Trump, it didn't matter whether you were a Republican or not. If you weren't with the team, you mm -hmm. were, he was going to go after you. And Goodell actually lost that election. Yes, and James Buckley, brother of William Buckley, was elected the uh, senator from New York State. Well, look, it is a absolutely fascinating subject, a, a well-done book, and uh, well worth everybody's time to take a look at. Zach, thanks for joining us thanks on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks to presidents of Ripon College and author Zach Massetti for joining us on this episode of Buried Treasure. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs>